0: Have you ever had someone in your life try to convince you that things aren't as they appear, but you just have that gut feeling, you know, that sneaking suspicion that uh, maybe they're not telling you the truth? If you... Hold on a second, hello? How do you like it? No, I just... (laughs) <laughs> <Who's> is that? <laughs> anyway, if you've ever had that situation in your life, someone's trying to tell you something, you just have that sneaking gut suspicion that maybe they're not telling the truth, I think you'll appreciate the story. John had invited his mother over for dinner, and during the meal, Mom couldn't help but noticing how attractive and shapely the housekeeper was. And uh, she wondered if there was more going on that met the eye. And uh, John told her, I know what you must be thinking, Mom, but I assure you, my relationship with my housekeeper is purely professional. A week later, the housekeeper told John, you know, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful gravy ladle that we had. You don't suppose she took it, do you? John thought about it for a second and jotted this note that he sent to his mom, so he sent her this letter. It says, "Uh, dear mother, I'm not saying that you did take a gravy ladle, and I'm not saying you didn't, but the fact remains that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. To which John's mom wrote back the following Dear son, now I'm not saying that you sleep with your housekeeper, nor am I saying you don't, but the fact remains that if she were sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle. (laughs) Love, mom. We've all been there, someone tries to tell you something, and you know, sometimes things are exactly as they appear, and other times they're not. For example, I was just told by Tom's wife, Tom's the guy who likes to yell out loud, Faye came up to me and said, hey, I uh, just want to let you know that don't take it personal, but Tom always talks in his sleep. So anyway, um, so, so, so now I know how to deal with it. Uh, We've come to the uh, eighth and final message in a series of messages that have focused our attention on God's description of love. And from the Bible, we learn much of what the world calls love, how the world defines love, kind of like John defined housekeeper, isn't even close to God's definition. In fact, uh, what the world calls love is often nothing more than an excuse for sexual immorality and selfishness. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we learn in this final message how love, how God's love reacts to change and circumstances in our life. How God's love reacts to change. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read these words. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and uh, do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. For love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love doesn't brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong that's been suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts, and since there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. And if there are tongues, they will cease. And if there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. From this passage, we've learned that God's love, agape love, spiritual love, love that's divine in origin, primarily focuses on people. And it's not, and it's patient and kind, and it's not characterized by what we saw in jealousy, or arrogance, or boastfulness. Doesn't act unbecomingly. Doesn't seek its own. It's not selfish. It's not provoked, not easily provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Isn't vindictive. Doesn't hold a grudge. Doesn't bear a grudge. Doesn't think of ways to get even with those who have harmed us. Doesn't rejoice when others around us fail and uh, fall short of the standards of God. It doesn't rejoice in that, but uh, actually weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice and mourns with those who have fallen to sin. And uh, we recognize that God's love is all of these things. And it's concerned about the needs and the feelings and the uh, concerns of others. It's compassionate. It's gracious. It's kind. And as I thought about what it means to be kind to others, I was reminded of something I read recently that I thought that you might enjoy. In his book, uh, Bill Gates talks about how feel-good, politically correct teachings have created a generation of kids with no concept of reality, and how this uh, concept set them up for failure in the real world, and here's the advice that he gives to young people, and in fact, all of us can learn something from these things, but he says this, first and foremost, life is not fair, get used to it. Number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem, the world will expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Number three, you'll not make $40,000 a year right out of high school. You won't be a vice president with a car phone until you earn them both. Number four, if you think your teacher is tough, wait till you get a boss. Number five, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had a different word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. Number six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about your mistakes, learn from them. Number seven, before you were born your parents weren't as boring as they are now. They got that way from paying your bills, cleaning your clothes, and listening to you talk about how cool you are. So, bef- so before you save the rainforest from the parasites of your parents' generation, try delousing the closet in your own room. Number eight, your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools they have abolished failing grades. They'll give you as many tries or attempts as you want to get the right answer. This doesn't bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Number nine, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get summers off, and very few employers are interested in helping you find yourself. Do that on your own time. Number ten, television is not real life. In real life, people actually have to leave the coffee shop to go to their jobs. And above all else, the foremost advice from Bill Gates to all of us, be kind to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. I like that. Be kind. One of the fascinating aspects of uh, God's love is how it reacts to circumstances. And in this final message, we're going to learn that love affects how we respond and react to various situations that occur in our lives. You've probably noticed that things don't always turn out like we would hope or want them to. In fact, the Bible tells us that man plans his ways, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. You know, we think things are going to turn out a certain way but as we learned in our study in the book of James, for those of us who say and presume upon God, we're gonna go into such and such a city, we're gonna be there so long, we're gonna invest in this and invest in that, we're gonna set up a business, we're gonna make so much money, then when it's all said and done, this is what we're gonna do, like the farmer who stored up all of his excess goods and he hoarded them up in his barn, and he said, this is all for me and I'm gonna enjoy all of it and this is my plan, The Lord steps in and says, You fool, for tonight your very soul is required of you. I think you should have taken into consideration that while you may plan your ways, you better be sensitive to the Lord's leading in your life. That ultimately God is in control of all things. And in fact, as we look at this, that's exactly what we're going to focus our concentration on to get started. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you've probably noticed as we look in verse 7 specifically, the question that I have to ask myself and to have you ask yourself is how do I react when things don't go the way I want? How do I respond to changing circumstances? How do I react when things don't go the way that I want them to go? And as we look at this, the key to understanding 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, is that found in the words all things. Notice what it says. It says that um, love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, and endures all things. The key to understanding how to, we're, how to properly handle change in our life from God's perspective is looking at the fact that it says, love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. And the key in this passage, obviously, are, is the phrase or the words, all things. Now, when we look at that, it's important to understand what exactly does the Bible refer to, or how does the Bible define all things? What does it mean by the phrase "all things"? Listen very carefully and don't miss this. When we read in the Bible that God is in control of all things, it means God is in control of all things. That's pretty. That's pretty deep, huh? I know it's early, but um, I mean, think about it. It means that God is in control of all things. The Bible clearly establishes the fact that all things are part of God's plan and His will. Now, it doesn't always mean that he caused them, but it does mean he may allow them. God does not cause all things, but God may allow all things. And there's a big difference between the two. And we're going to look at some examples of that to help us clearly understand what it means that if love is to bear all things and to believe all things and to hope all things and endure all things, we need to understand what it is that all things refers to. You know, there are many times in life where I'm sure that you look and say, God, you know, if if you're in control of all things, I don't understand and what's going on now in my life doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. I mean, I'm trying to understand how, if you are in control of all things, how you would allow this to take place in my life because this doesn't make any sense to me. And we struggle with maybe the fact that either God is in control of all things and yet we don't understand what he's doing. And there are those who say God can't be in control of all things because if he was in control of all things, he wouldn't allow to happen the things that have happened. Rabbi Harold Kushner who had a book on the Times bestselling list for a long period of time came to the tragic conclusion in his own mind that God must not be sovereign, God must not be in control because if God was sovereign in control of all things he shouldn't allow the things that happen in the world to happen and what he was saying in essence was if I was God I'd do it differently if I was God I wouldn't allow this to happen All things. I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't allow these financial struggles in my life. If I was God, I wouldn't allow the problems I'm having with my children. If I was God, I wouldn't allow the things that are going on in my marriage. If I was God, I wouldn't allow this stuff to happen all around the world. If I was God, drunk drivers wouldn't kill innocent people. If I was God, innocent people wouldn't get uh, AIDS. If I was God, if I was God. But the good news is that you're not, neither am I. And thank God for that. Because God is in control of all things. And before we understand anything else in 1 Corinthians 13 about the love of God, we have got to understand and lay a foundation that God is indeed in control of all things. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Turn back a couple books, Acts Romans chapter 8. And notice a verse that many of us have memorized. Maybe we know, maybe we don't. And I'd like you to become a little more familiar with it because it it, carries with it the idea of all things. In Romans 8:28, we read these words. And we know, and we know that God causes, what? That He works together for good, that He causes all things. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to what? To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It's important to realize and understand that as Paul says, that God and we know, first of all, we is who? We as believers. And we as believers know. We know intellectually. We know experientially. We know because we've lived through it and we've come to realize as we look back in our life that even though things have happened at times in our life that we don't understand what God is doing, what his purpose is in it, what his plan is in it, we know because we've lived long enough and experienced God's uh, relationship in our life to the fullest that we can look back and say, hey, I know now today what God was doing then when at that time I questioned him and didn't understand what in the world was going on. How many of us can make that same statement? We know in hindsight what God was doing, but often cases we're going through the middle of it, we don't have a clue. But we do know this. But we know. We've come to know. We've come to experience it firsthand. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. We know it. We've seen it. We've seen how God works in our life. At the time, we don't understand it. At the time, it may not make any sense. But in hindsight, often there's a case we look back and say, ah, now I know experientially, intellectually, emotionally, and it has to do with a personal understanding, a relationship with God that goes beyond the ritual of going to church. It goes beyond the ritual of saying ritualistic prayers. It goes beyond the ritual of maybe every now and then reading a couple of verses out of your Bible. It goes to the fact that I have such a relationship and close walk with God that I've come to know Him personally and I know how He conducts Himself. I know His character. I know who he is. I know what he's all about. I know that even though I don't understand things that happen at that point in life, I know that I understand that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to who? His purposes. See, the problem with me is as I look at what God's doing in my life is that I know what my purpose is, but often I don't know what God's purpose is. But the key to understanding the all things of Scripture is understanding that God's ways aren't our, our ways. And we aren't always in tune with the way He does things. And if it was up to me, I'd take the path of least resistance in my walk with God. You know, make it as comfortable as possible. But the problem is, as we've learned from Scripture, is that many of us, the only way that we'll ever grow is through trials and tribulation. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and endurance has its perfect result that we will become mature men and women of God. And it's through those trials and testings. You know, I know as a, as a child, or young person going through school, I would have loved to go through school and never taken a test. That would have been cool. And it has no bearing on reality, but it would have been great. It's like, man, you know what? Don't test me. And I'll get along just fine. But see, we carry we that same mentality in our walk with God. God, don't test me. Don't try me. Just let me have a nice, easy, comfortable existence, and we'll just go from there. See, for those who love God and are called according to His purposes, God works all things for good. Now, I'm sure, I'll admit, as I'm sure many of you were, there are many times in my life where changing circumstances occurred, and I questioned God. It's like, God, I know this verse, but how in the world are you going to make something good out of this mess? I mean, I I don't know. What what are you thinking? If you're truly in control, why would you allow this to happen? What's up? And yet the Bible clearly teaches over and over again that God is in control. Let me give you a great illustration of that. As I was thinking about examples in Scripture, one came to mind immediately. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis, very first book of the Bible, chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 Let's identify with a man. In fact, you know, the Old Testament was written for our, our, uh, for our instruction as an example. The New Testament, the principles that are laid out are principles that many of us look at and go, you know, how can I really grab, this, uh, grab a hold of this and understand it? And God says, hey, the, the, the Old Testament is a great place to go back for examples of people who lived out the principle that now I am teaching you. So as I look back at Genesis chapter 50... I look at a perfect example of a person who had to ask the question during life's changing circumstances, God, if you're in control of all things, what in the world's going on? What's up? Genesis chapter 50, look at verse 15. If you recall from our last session, we talked about Joseph and his brothers, how they envied him. They were jealous of him. In fact, their envy and jealousy led to hatred to the point of they wanted to kill him. They decided not to kill him, but they decided to sell him into slavery. And as we look at this in Genesis 50, verse 15, at the end of this whole ordeal, the Bible says when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Man, we're in big trouble now. What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrongs which we did to him? I want you to follow through and see how this passage in love, 1 Corinthians 13, is woven into the character and the very fiber of this man's life. They were concerned, and rightly so, because the natural desire or tendency of man when man is harmed is what? To get even or to pay back. The Bible continually says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. You don't have to worry about that. 1 Corinthians 13 says that what? Love does not take into an account a wrong that's been suffered. See, they didn't understand God's love because they were not familiar with God nor his love. They didn't understand what would make Joseph tick. They didn't understand what made him, made him the way he was. But see, Joseph and his relationship with God had the love of God poured out within his heart so that he and then in turn could pour it out to those around him. And fortunately for his brothers, that was the case. But they were scared to death because they were assured in their own heart that, you know what, we're in deep trouble now. Dad's out of the picture. He was the only one in their mind that was keeping Joseph from enacting vengeance upon them. And now he's gone. What in the world's going to happen? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. You like that? You notice what they did? They sent a message to Joseph saying, hey, we just want to let you know, last thing a dad said, very last thing he said, right before God took him out of this world into the next. Last thing he said was, make sure you tell Joseph to forgive you guys for what you did. So, hey, we just want to, you know, make sure that you understand that. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You know, it makes you wonder what he wept about. He weep about the loss of his father and, and, you know, one day getting to see him again. You you think he wept about maybe his brothers still had not learned their lessons. They're still connivers. They're still manipulators. They were still trying to find a way to try to get their own way to be done. Or was he just broken about the whole thing? And it's another great example of what? See, love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. He was brokenhearted. Because of what they had done. And and where they still were in their own walk with God. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? What's his point? Am I I your judge? No. Am I the one that's going to get even with you? No. Am I the one that's going to judge you for what you did? No. That's in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You know what? That's not my problem. God will deal with you as he finds fit. And if God's to choose to show you mercy, that's cool. If he chooses in some way to discipline you for what you did, it's all up to him because God is just. I don't have a problem with it because I didn't take into account a wrong suffered. It says, and as for you, you meant evil against me. That was your intention. That was your motivation. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, because love is kind. Isn't that great? What a great example of, in the flesh, the principles that we're learning in 1 Corinthians 13. Think about it. He didn't rejoice in unrighteousness. He didn't take into account a wrong that was suffered. As he looked at them, he was broken by what was going on. Love bears all things. And that's exactly what we're going to see in a minute. Love bears all things. But the Bible tells us very clearly that what they meant for evil, that God intended for good. At the time he was going through it, you know he had to be asking the question, God, what in the world do you got in mind here? What have I done to deserve being thrown in prison? What have I done? If you look at the, the overall scope of his life, he never did anything wrong to begin with, that he was thrown, first of all, into slavery or sold into slavery. Then when he was in Potiphar's house and he was elevated to second in command, where he was in Potiphar's house as Potiphar's assistant, his, his Potiphar's wife wanted to have sexual relationships with him, in relation with him. He said, no, I can't do that. How can I sin against God and against my master, your husband? And she said, look, man, if you don't, I'm going to tell everybody you did anyway. So one way or the other, you're in big trouble. And he said, oh, I don't care. I'd rather be in trouble before, God, before men than before God. So he took up and he ran naked out in the street and they arrested him and they threw him back in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, that's a bad day or a few bad days. You talk about changing circumstances. It's like, God, what, what in the world is going on? I mean, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, and, man, this ain't turning out right. And he had to question God. And by the end of all of it, he realized in hindsight... As God elevated him to that position and the position that he was in, the position of trust and authority and a position of stewardship that many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives were saved because God had given him the wisdom of how to prepare for the drought and the famine that would take place for seven years in the land. Isn't that a wonderful truth of God's love in our life? We don't always understand it, but I do know this. The Bible clearly teaches that God is in control of all things of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever Romans 11:36 Ephesians 1:11 in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel He's not a passive observer of the all things of life he's deeply involved in them there are those who come out and say, well, you know, God, yeah, there's a creator and he's God, but, you know, but we believe in evolution too. We're trying to make everything work. We're trying to make this, this uh, theist theory work, and we're trying to make evolution work. We're trying to make science and God compatible somehow or the other. So maybe God did create things. He got the wheels in motion, but then he stead- stood back and just let everything happen, and it's just kind of happening the way it is. That's nonsense. That's heretical. God is in control of all things. That not only did he create the world, but all things are sustained by and through him. The Bible says that Jesus himself, creator of the world, that all things are sustained by him and through him, all things came into being. John 1 tells us the same thing. Apart from him, speaking of Jesus, nothing has come into being that has come into being. And we need to recognize and understand that that's the truth of the word of God, whether we understand it or not. There are seasons in life to everything. There's a season, a time for every purpose under the heavens, Ecclesiastes 3.1. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever, and nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does does it that men should fear him, that which has already been and what is about to be. God requires an account for what is past. You know, the Bible even says in Proverbs 16.31 that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In in modern terms, it would be like you pull out a coin and you flip a coin, and God knows before you even pull out a coin, what coin you're going to pull out. And whatever it turns up, he knows it's going to be heads or tails. And you can do it a million times, and he'll know every time. That even, it even, quote, chance, or what we call in our culture, luck. God knows. The word all means everything or everyone. When we're talking about all things in this passage, where we're talking exactly that. All circumstances, events, and situations are under God's control. And if we understand that and know that, it affects our every action and our attitudes every day. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we read this. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Why? Because God's got everything under control. All things are all things. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. For the peace of God which guards your hearts or surrounds your hearts and minds uh, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What are you worried about? Jesus said the same thing. Look around, look at the birds of the air. Don't don't I provide for them? Doesn't your heavenly Father know their needs? And how much more valuable are you and am I who are created in the image and likeness of God? See, he says, hey, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. The only time we worry about things is when we start to believe that God's not in control of all things. And let me tell you something. If God's not in control of all things, we got a lot to be worried about. But since he is in control of all things, we have nothing to be worried about. That's why it's not an, a, an option, it's a command. Be anxious for nothing. In other words, don't worry about anything. Don't. We don't have to. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4 13. All things. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God is in control and he's not limited. Someone sent this to me recently, and I I like this, and I just want you to listen to it for a second as it relates to the all things of Scripture. Moses and the people were in the desert, but what was he going to do with them? They had to be fed, and feeding two to three million people requires a lot of food. According to the quartermaster general in the army, it's reported that Moses would have had to have 15 tons of food each day to feed these people. It says, and do you know that to bring that much food in each day, two freight trains each a mile long would be, would be required? Now that's a problem because there weren't trains then. So we got all kind of things we got to deal with here. Besides, you must remember, they were out in the deserts they'd have to use that, and they'd also have to have firewood to use in cooking this food. It would take 4,000 tons of wood and a few more freight trains each a mile long just for one day. And they were 40 years in transit. They would also have to have water. And if they only had enough to drink and wash a few dishes, it would take 11 billion gallons each day and a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long just to bring in water. Oh, there's another thing. They had to get across the Red Sea at night. Now, if they went on a narrow path, double file, the line would be 800 miles long and would require 35 days and nights to get through it. So there had to be enough space in the Red Sea, three miles wide, so they would be 5,000 abreast to get over in one night. But then there's another problem. Each time they camped at the end of the day, a campground two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island was required, or a total of 750 square miles. Think of it, the space just for nightly camping. Do you think Moses figured all this out before he left Egypt? Isn't that great? I don't think he even thought about it. You see, Moses believed in God, and God can take care of him. Now the skeptics would read something like that and see that's exactly why I don't believe in the Bible because there are too many things that happen in the Bible that are just impossible for me to believe. And I look at that same skeptic and say, you know what, And that's exactly why I believe in God because I don't know about your God, but our God's not that little. See, our God is not limited because our God can do all things and all things are in his control. When I read things like that, I'm just more and more amazed at how awesome God is. But you know what? I mean, just stop and think from a practical standpoint, as, 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 as incredible as all that is, you know, what we just read, I want you to stop and think about one more thing. Our God provides for every person that lives on the face of the earth every day. Not two to three million in the desert. But 6 billion people worldwide, God has created an environment that will provide for our needs day and night. That's an incredible thought. You go into one grocery store. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. Obviously, God also gives us responsibility to go out and, and to farm and to harvest and to bring all these goods in. But don't ever forget that it all starts with him. You go to one grocery store and you look at everything on the shelves and you go, wow, that's a lot of stuff. And that's just one. That's one. Let me ask you something. How limited is your God? I know this. When the Bible says that my God can do all things, I don't have a problem understanding that. I may have a problem understanding what he's doing at that particular point in time. But that doesn't mean that I have a problem understanding that, you know what, I've got confidence in a God of all things, and it keeps me from undue worry and anxiety that leads me to trust him in every situation of life. And therefore, if I'm trusting in him, the Bible says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. How about you? In everything in life, are you giving thanks? When you're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, are you giving thanks? Thanks. When you're going through the difficulties of life, are you giving thanks? Because as we go back, it will make a little bit more sense now understanding that love bears all things. What does it mean that love bears all things? The word bears doesn't refers to indoors because we're going to see that in a moment. But the word actually refers to the idea of, when it's used in a noun form in the New Testament, it carries with it the idea of putting a roof or a covering over one's head. I like that. A roof or a covering over one's head. It's the idea of protection. It protects those around us. In 1 Peter 4 8, for example, it says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. It's a covering over us. Love will cover a multitude of sins. When God's love is present, there will be a protective love demonstrated in the midst of these difficult circumstances. I've had the opportunity to speak with many of you on an individual basis at different times in your life as you're going through difficulties or situations or changes have taken place and to be able to sit and recognize how difficult it is at times to go through the things that we go through in this life trying to grasp and understand why it is we're going through it and what it is that we're going through it for and what is God trying to teach us. And one of the things that I can say with absolute confidence and certainty is that any time I've ever met with any of you to discuss anything that's going on, I've never run to tell somebody else about it. I may have used it as an illustration without naming names so that there's something that can be learned from what we go through individually to help one another, and that's why we're to consider how to love and stimulate one another to good deeds to help encourage each other as we look at the difficulties we go through, but I would never name any names. And the reason it's very simple is because God's love bears all things which means that there's a protection over to protect the integrity of the individual who's involved in a difficult time at that moment in their life. And so we don't violate that. And and if you've got a person that it's in your life, the accountability and the transparency, and the reason that small groups don't work, the reason that people don't want to share with one another is that the integrity is is often missing. The confidentiality isn't there. So as we share something, it's like, man, it it reminds me of the story of the uh, three pastors who were meeting in their little accountability group. I don't know if you've heard it or not, but as they're sitting together, they finally got to the point where they're feeling a little more comfortable with each other. They thought that they could trust each other. There was a confidentiality that was there, and they had no one else to talk to, and it was good to have that kind of group. Group available. And the first guy says, Man, he goes, You know what? I finally feel like I can trust you guys with this. I have been struggling with a drinking problem for years, and I've never had anybody I could share with because I was concerned about my position. And I want you guys to be praying for me and holding me accountable and, 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 and meeting with me and making sure that I don't fall. And the other guy was like relieved. He said, man, I'm so glad you shared that because I'm having a problem with gambling in my life. You know, I've always liked to gamble on sports events and and I've got a real problem with it and I've gotten a financial mess because of it. And I want you to pray for me and hold me accountable and I want you guys to, to make sure that we keep meeting together and ask me how I'm doing. And the third guy looked and says, man, I'm so glad you guys shared that because my problem is I got a problem with gossip and I can't wait to get out of here right now and tell everybody I know about you two guys. When you have some time on your own, turn, turn it to 1 Samuel chapter 19 and read about the story of David and Jonathan. It's a wonderful story about God's love that was demonstrated in the life of a man named Jonathan toward his friend David. Jonathan's father was King Saul and Saul hated David because David was heir apparent to the throne. And he wanted to kill him because of that. Because why? Because love is not jealous or envious. And obviously Saul didn't have the love of God in his heart as he was envious and jealous of the position that David was about to take over as far as the kingdom was concerned. So he told his servants, I want you to kill the guy. But Jonathan loved David. And he went to David and he said, look, I got to tell you what's going on and my dad wants to kill you. And that love that bears all things was a protection in the life of David. He told him the inside scoop on what was going on. He got involved. He risked being involved. He risked taking sides. He risked stepping up even against his own father who could have had his own head handed to him. And he said, you know what, but I want you to know I love you and I'm willing to protect you. And love bears all things. It's a great illustration of it. Later in life, after Jonathan died, David stood up and said, is there anybody left in the house of Jonathan? And there was a young man who was crippled, the Bible says. He was lame in both feet, and his name was Mephibosheth, and he was living out in the wilderness. And it's a wonderful story about love and kindness, where David sent for Mephibosheth and brought him into his own household and sat him at the table, and he said, this is a perfect picture of grace. You have done nothing to deserve this. I am calling you out. You were out in the wilderness. You were lost, and I'll bring you in. Now you're found. I'll sit you at my table, and I will provide for you for the rest of my life. Because of your father, I want to show kindness for what he did for me in his life. What a wonderful picture of God's grace in all of our lives. Where we don't deserve it, but he just pulls us out of the masses of people and says, if you trust in my son Jesus, I will forgive your sins. I will make you whole. I will make you a child of mine. I will bring you into my own family. And I will meet all of your needs through Christ Jesus for the rest of your life. All things will be available to you. What a wonderful picture of the fact that we don't deserve it at all, but God reaches out and he offers and he extends that invitation for whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible was filled with that. And it's a wonderful thing to know that love bears all things. Another illustration, I got a call not too long ago from a company who was looking to hire a project manager for their construction company. And they specifically asked me about a man that I had been doing business with for eight years. The man was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But you know what, there were 80% of the things, there was probably 80% of what he did in business that I could say wholeheartedly, man, you know what, those are his strengths. And when these people called and said, can you tell us his strengths, I was more than happy to do it. They said, well, how about his weaknesses? And you know, I could have spent a lot of time talking about those 20%. But you know what? Love bears all things. Love protects others. And I'm not talking about lying for anybody or being deceptive about anything. But all I'm saying is that we need to become people who emphasize the good things and de-emphasize the bad. Who highlight the person's strengths and cover their weaknesses. Not uh, not, Not to be deceptive, not to be a liar or a manipulator, But we need to become people who love exudes from our very presence that when we emphasize the positives of somebody else's life, they clearly see that. Are there there weaknesses in his life? Absolutely. Are there weaknesses in all of our lives? Absolutely. But I want to be surrounded by people who accentuate that 80% or 90% or 95% or 70% of that which they look at and say, is you know what, there's some good qualities in that person's life rather than the person who harps on the 10% or 15% or 20% and gets you to the point where you're so dis- discouraged about yourself that it's like, wow, what in the world's going on? I'm a loser. Hey, you're not a loser. Nobody here is a loser. Think Jesus Christ would die for losers? Jesus Christ, because of his death and our acceptance of him, makes anyone who believes in him a winner in the sight of God. And it's not because of anything good in any of us. Don't misunderstand that. But it's because God loves people. And he emphasizes that we, if we love others, should bear all things. The wonderful news is that this particular person was hired by this company. He's been there about six to eight weeks now, and they think he's doing a great job. He's surrounded by people. The weaknesses that he had were the strengths of this company. There are people that are there that that surround him, that are administrative types, where he was weak at paperwork. They've got people that now that's what they do for him. And you know what? They've highlighted or they've accentuated his strengths, And because of that, he's become a valuable asset for that company. And I learned a lesson from that. And I hope that all of us do. That love bears all things. Number two is, love also believes all things. And it doesn't mean, duh, that anything anybody says, you go, oh, love believes all things. Duh. Love believes, well, she's a housekeeper. Duh. You know, there's objective evidence. It doesn't mean that we don't think, and it doesn't mean we don't evaluate things, and it doesn't mean that we become gullible or naive. You know, a lot of times, people think Christians are like, like gullible, naive people. They don't know how to think. They, they're just like, oh, I just believe it. <laughs> what do you mean, you just believe it? I'll tell you why. I mean, I believe the Bible because I've dug into it and found that the Bible is very credible and trustworthy as far as its source of information. Now, others will look at you and say, man, you believe the Bible. Yeah, you believe that, that, that you know, somebody could be swallowed by a fish. Yeah. What's the problem with that? Oh, you believe God could have provided for two to three million people in the wilderness? Duh. You believe that? Absolutely. See, because belief always has an object that it rests upon. See, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we look at that, we realize there's, the, what does it mean to believe? And it's a an critical thing that we understand it because 559 times it's used in the New Testament. It's used 248 times as a verb. It's a very fundamental word that's used in our Christian faith. I believe. I believe in God. What does it mean to believe? I believe in Jesus Christ, that He's the Son of God, and that He loved me, and He gave Himself up for me on the cross. I believe that He died on the cross. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that three days later he rose from the dead. I believe that one day he's going to come and judge the living and the dead. I believe he's going to return. I believe, I believe, I believe. We use that word all the time, but what does it mean to believe? And as we look at this, it's important that we understand there are times when the circumstances of our life change what we would consider for the worse, and it puts into serious question whether or not we can believe God. Can we believe what he's doing? And as we look at the Word of God, now anytime that I have a doubt in my life, I just want to share with you, anytime I have a doubt believing that God's in control of all things, anytime I have a doubt believing that even in the midst of a changing circumstance, what I would consider and put in the category, if things are getting worse, when I doubt God or don't believe God, the only thing that gets me beyond that point of unbelief or disbelief is I've got to go back to the Word of God. And I've got to allow God to reveal himself to me. And I've got to allow God to speak to me through his word in a way that I cannot mistake the fact that he is in control of all things. Probably one of the greatest examples found in scripture is from the life of a man whose name is Job. Many of you know the story. We're not going to go through all of it. But Job was having one of those changing circumstances, situations that many of us would put in the category of things are getting pretty bad. <coughs> he lost his children they were killed he lost his business he lost his finances he then lost his health things weren't going real well for him as far as our standard of what's good and what's bad and he began to question that God was in control of all things and you say Chuck how do you know that Job questioned that and I know because if you spend time in the Word of God God will reveal that to you if you got your Bible notice in chapter 38 that it's pretty apparent that Job was questioning whether God was a God in control of all things. And the reason that I've come to that conclusion is because God asks Job a series of questions. Chapter 38. Job was questioning, God, if you're really in control, why would you allow this to happen in my life? Why would I lose my business? Why would I lose my children? Why would I lose my health? Why would I lose my finances? Why, I mean, why would I lose every, everything in my life? And I don't understand if you're in control of all things. What's up? What's going on? What are you doing? And Job said this. I mean, God said this to Job. Verse 2 of chapter 38. God answers out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I'll ask you, and you instruct me. Number one, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you must know? Or who stretched a line in it? And what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? It says, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and instead of bolt and doors. I said, thus far you shall come, but no further. And here, you shall, and here shall your proud waves stop. What are you saying? Where were you? You notice what he's saying? Obviously, Job, since you know much more than me, I think I'll ask you some questions that help to reveal something that's wrong in your own heart. Where were you when I created the foundation of the world? I don't remember sitting down with you at the conference table and coming up with a game plan. Where were you? Where were you when I laid its measurements out? Where were you when I enclosed the sea? You ever stop and think about that? What stops the ocean from just coming over? I you mean, drive down the beach sometimes and just look over there and say, man, what stops that thing, man? There's a lot of water out there. What stops it right there? And you know what? God does. He said, that's it. That's as far as you're going to come. Stop. That's good. Isn't that great? This is, I love this stuff, man. It just makes the wisdom of the world seem foolishness to God. It's like, what's so hard? It's like, stop right there. That's good. North star, stay right there. All right, got it. When I made a cloud, okay, he goes, have you ever, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Now, some of us may think the sun rises and sets on us, but, uh, you know, but have you ever done it? Tomorrow, I want you to go, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to have sunrise be about a half hour earlier. Go ahead, try it. Don't hurt yourself. And then, it t- and then look at it. that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked shaking of it. It's changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment and from the wicked their light is withheld. And you know what I'm wondering? I'm thinking to myself, man, if I was Job, I'm hoping God is reading and is just going through this list really, really fast. Because how would you like to have been there and just have them just nice and slow? Oh, have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Oh, please tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness where its place? That you may take to it its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. (laughs) Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Which I have reserved for the time of distress for the day of war and battle. Where's the way that light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has left the channel for the flood or the wave of thunderbolt to bring rain on land without, without people or on a desert without a man in it to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of the grass sprout? Has the rain a father who has gotten begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface of the deep is in prison. And he goes on and on and on and on and on and it just continues. And sometimes just read this and I would challenge you to read it sometime when you're questioning the circumstances and the changes of your life, wondering if God is really in control. It goes on through chapter 39. It goes on through chapter 40. It goes on through chapter 41. And I know that Job's feeling like, man, I am just getting a licking right now, man. It just ain't stopping. This licking just keeps on ticking. And it's like, man. And he goes on and it continues to go on. In Job chapter 42, finally, he answers, Oh, you know what I like, too. Don't miss this, because if I remember right. Oh, yeah, and, ch- and chapter 40, he tries to give God to stop. Verse 4, Job answered the Lord. God stopped for a minute. Job jumped right in. Hey, be- behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice I'll add no more. Oh, sorry, kept going. Then the Lord answered again and <laughs> kept going. Because he wanted to make sure he understood the point. Now look at verse chapter 42, verse 1 through 6. Then then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. There you go. End of lesson. Whenever you start to doubt that God can do all things, whenever you start to doubt that what you're going through in life, that somehow God missed it and and, and isn't paying any attention to what it is that's happening in your life, Whenever you think you know more than God or you know better than God what it is that God should be doing, I would challenge you and encourage you, pick up the word of God and allow God to speak to you out of the whirlwind as he spoke to Job. And the conclusion that Job came to was one that was right before God. When he said, I know that you can do all things. The point was perfectly clear to Job. And that no purpose of yours can be stopped. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by my ears, but now I have seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. You notice what he said? you can do anything you want you can do all things i understand that and i spoke in ignorance and i ask you to forgive me and now the only thing that i will speak will not be words of criticism or questioning but the only words that will come out of my mouth are these god what is it that you're doing in this situation what is it that you're trying to teach me what is it that you want me to learn and how can what i learned be applied into my life so that I can make a difference in the lives of people around me who still question whether or not you are a God who's in control of all things? Are you going through a change in your life that you look at and say, God, what in the world's going on? And you're questioning God and you're wondering what he's doing. I would encourage you, as I encourage myself, to follow the lead of Job that I will confess my sins with my mouth. God, I questioned you, and it's the only reason I questioned you is I haven't spent enough time getting to know you better. Once I got to know you, I can understand. You can do anything you want, whenever you want to do it. And I ask you to forgive me for doubting you. Give me the strength to believe you, to trust you, to look at you and know that you are in control of all things. Because love in our hearts believes all things, that God is truly in control. It's God's love within the life of the believer that causes us to believe that God truly is in control of all things. It's love in the life of the believer that causes believers to hope in all things. It's a beautiful word in scripture, the word hope. Why so downcast, we sang, why so downcast, oh my soul, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, it has to do with the future. That we've got a God who can do anything whenever he wants to do it. To him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages and the world without end, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. We read a great story that I want to share with you about hoping and understanding that we have a God who can do all things and our hope, our trust should be in him. Hope has to do with the future that God can provide for us when at yet in the moment in the present we can't see that it's happened but you know, hope, faith is the assurance of things what? Hope for the conviction of things yet not seen faith, the assurance of things hoped for knowing that if God said it's going to happen in the future, I can trust him and it's just a matter of God's timing until that comes about I can hope in him, the blessed hope of every believer is what? The return of Jesus Christ our blessed hope he said he's coming back He says, where you are, I will be, and you will be with me, and you will be with me forever. Why are you so discouraged? Why are you so downcast? Put your hope in me. Howard Hendricks writes in a book, he says, we had a lovely couple in Dallas a number of years ago. He says he sold his business at a loss, went into vocational Christian work, and things got rather rough. There were four kids in the family. One night at family worship, Timmy, the youngest boy, said, Daddy, do you think Jesus would mind if I asked him for a shirt? Well, no, of course not. Let's write that down in our prayer request book, Mother. So they took out their journal and they wrote it down. She wrote down, shirt for Timmy. And she added next to it, size seven. You can be sure that every day, Timmy saw it to it, that they prayed for the shirt. And after several weeks, one Saturday, the mother received a telephone call from a clothier in downtown Dallas, a Christian businessman. He says, I finished my July clearance sale, and knowing that you have four boys, it occurred to me that you might use something that we have left. Could you use some boys shirts? She said, "What size?" He said, "Size 7." He said, "Well, how many do you have?" He said, "12." Now, many of us might have taken the shirts, stuffed them in the bureau drawer and made some casual comment to the children, but not these this wise set of parents. That night is expected Timmy said, "Don't forget, Mommy, let's pray for the shirt." Mommy said, "We don't have to pray for the shirt anymore, Timmy." And Timmy said, "Well, how's come?" He said, well, the Lord has answered your prayer. He said, he has? She said, right. So as previously arranged, Brother Tommy goes out, gets one shirt, brings it in and puts it on the table and little Timmy's eyes become like deer in headlights. He says, Tommy goes out, gets another shirt, brings it back, out, back, out, back until he piles 12 shirts on the table and Timmy thinks God is going into the shirt business. But you know what? There's a little kid in Dallas today by the name of Timothy who believes there's a God in heaven interested enough in his needs to provide boys with shirts even size 7. And I say praise God. See, because love hopes all things. We can trust God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Isn't that great? love also endures all things how should we properly handle change love bears all things it believes all things hopes all things and endures all things and this is the word that we're referring to from the very beginning when we think well, maybe love bearing all things means enduring all things or bearing up under something and that's not it at all the word that's used here is love endures all things knowing that we can be, be, uh, be joyful in the midst of tribulation and trials it says, consider it all joy, in our series in James, consider it all joy, my brethren, what? When you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you'll be perfect and complete, mature, lacking in nothing. The Bible says that God uses, and we know through that series, that God uses trials in our life to bring about endurance. And endurance has its perfect result that we become mature that we're complete that we're lacking in nothing and so as we look at this and understand that all things mean all things God's love in our hearts will help us to bear all things to be a protection for those around us who fail and at times sometimes fail miserably but to protect them from the consequences of other human beings by telling them things that aren't any of their business it's not talking about hiding things or denying things or, or some conspiracy It's just talking about choosing to to dwell on the 80% or 90% of the things in other people's lives that are good and they're wholesome and they're right before God. Protecting the person around us and not trying to destroy them. Just like Joseph, hey, you know what? He didn't have to speak badly of his brothers. He didn't have to hold a grudge against them. He didn't have to enact some type of vengeance or vindictiveness towards them because he said, who am I, God? I'm not God. God will deal with you as he finds fit and we can trust in him. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. And you know what? Sometimes God may decide to show mercy to those. And thank God that God is a God who is patient and he's kind. Love believes all things. Believes that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Love hopes all things, knowing that even at this moment in time where we don't understand it, we can hope because we've got Scripture to give us precedent for the fact that as we hope in God then we will see that God is producing a work in our life and his purposes and his plan will be completed as he has designated. And the last thing is it endures all things. God is in control. You know, as we conclude the series, it's critical to remember that God's love, the Bible says God's love will never fail. In 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of all of it says basically the bottom line is, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But you know, the greatest of these is love. And the reason for it's very simple. We're not going to need spiritual gifts one day because we'll be standing in the presence of God. We're not going to need hope one day because everything we hope for will come to fruition. We don't need to hope for the future. We'll be living the future and in in that particular moment in the present. So we don't have to hope, the blessed hope of Jesus. We won't have to hope anymore when he returns. We're not going to have to have faith. Faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We're not going to need faith because we're going to see him as he is. For those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be with him for all of eternity. And we won't need any faith at that time. We won't need any hope at that time. We won't need to believe anything at that time. But you know what? God's love will go throughout eternity. And as we look at that, it's important to recognize and understand that God's love is available only to those who come to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It says that we love because he first loved us. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5.5 God's love is the fruit, the product of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. And all believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in their heart. Paul said, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 1, that the Holy Spirit of God was given to us as a down payment. That where the Spirit of God is one day, the Spirit of God will be called back to God himself. And as a result, us with him. But just because you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you doesn't mean the Holy Spirit of God is controlling your life. And that's why we see believers who are jealous and boastful and arrogant and selfish and rude and unforgiving and vindictive and rejoice in unrighteousness. We don't have to be like this. We don't have to live that way. We can be free of that. We have our freedom in Christ. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Sin quenches the Spirit's work in our life. Sinful lifestyles keep us from being everything that God wants us to be. The Bible says if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We need to recognize that we need to confess our sin. This battle that's taken place. I want to love people, God, as you want me to. But there's this battle taking place in my life where I'm jealous and I'm envious and I'm boastful and I'm arrogant and I'm vindictive and I'm unforgiving and all these things I struggle with and wretched man that I am. Who can set me free from all this? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whose death frees us. From all of that, if we choose to allow God to do what he wants to do in our life. The biggest battle that we have isn't with God. The biggest battle that we have is within our own hearts to be obedient to God. Because Jesus Christ already won the battle that we had with God we're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer enemies with God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, we're no longer condemned by God. We have peace with God. We have peace in our own hearts. We have peace with one another if we live a life of obedience to God. See, spiritual love enhances all other forms of love. Think about it. Sexual love must be controlled by spiritual love or it'll violate God's will for our life and it'll hurt others. Friendship love must be controlled by spiritual love or our relationships with others will become empty and harmful and unproductive. Family love must be controlled by spiritual love or we'll isolate ourselves trying to walk alone and be independent. We'll lack a sense of belonging that's filled with loving, caring, and provision of our needs. God's love is the greatest thing in all of the world. And it is my hope and my encouragement as we read the Word of God that each one of us, if we need to confess our sin before God, if we doubt God that He's in control, that we do that today, that we turn to His Word for counsel and direction and stability. Because without the Word of God, we have nowhere to go. Jesus' disciples said it. Where, he said, where, where are you going to go? He, they said, well, where are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. We're not going to turn away from you. Where would we go? Who would we listen to? What books would we buy? What counsel would we seek? There's nowhere else to go but to you, God. And it's about time as we turn to him that we become obedient in our lives and we begin to love people around us as God loves us and as God loves them patiently and kindly. And as we look at this, it's great to realize and understand that God's love will never fail. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just praise you for the truth of your word. We just praise you for being a God who's in control of all things. The skeptics, sneer, and the cynics are critical of the fact that somehow or another you're limited. But we know because you've revealed to us that you are a God who's in control of all things. That you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. God, we just praise you. We trust in you. We rest in you. We relax. We chill out. We're not anxious. We're not worried anymore because we know who you are and what you can do. And as Job said, I've, I've heard about you, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I've asked stupid questions, and now I just put my hand over my mouth. The only question that I'll ever ask in the future is, God, what are you trying to teach me? What is it that I need to learn? And how can I apply it immediately in my life so that I can be a light in a dark world around us? Lord, we just thank you for Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, for those who would believe that we would not perish but have everlasting life. And we just praise you because you first loved us. Even when we're sinners, running from you, the Bible says that you sought us out in your great love. God, we just thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have, the freedom that we have to be able to walk in obedience with you, not bound by sin any longer. And as we choose to do what's right before you, to be freed from all of those things that held us back. Lord, we just love you and we praise you and we just ask that we can be a conduit of your love in a world that is starving for love around us by the definition that you give in your word and not by that of a culture around us. And we just praise you in Christ's name, amen.